Alright guys, welcome back to another edition of bonus content for the Red and Edge show. As the two of us have been catching up with a few more things that we put on the back burner while we were going through a very, very busy election cycle for both of us, Elaine reminded me of a show that she did about a month ago back on the Fight for Life podcast. I gave it a listen and they had a great conversation ranging everywhere from Elaine's work over on the Jor Jorgensen campaign, along with dating and life style, how we came to Liberty, and how we plan to take Liberty going forward. It was a great show. Go ahead and check out the link for their Twitter and their YouTube channel in the description below. And, as always, enjoy. Take care. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Fight for Liberty show. Today, we are joined by a special guest, Elaine Joan. She was a uh, social media coordinator for Joe Jorgensen's campaign, as well as an active member uh, in the, the LP nationally. Uh, she's coming on to talk to us about her experience with the LP and how she got involved, as well as you know what she sees as hope for the future to come. Uh, so Elaine, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. How's it feel being a brand new podcast host? <laughs> um, it's it's a lot of fun. Honestly, I've gotten to talk to so many people through this that I would have never have really been able to have any kind of long form conversation with otherwise. So mm -hmm. it's it's definitely been a lot of fun. It was slower moving than I was expecting. I definitely when I started this off in like March, mm -hmm. I was like I'm going to just interview a bunch of people. I got like Valerie Sarwark and Joseph Bishop Henchman within the first like six weeks or so. And I was like, I'm just going to, they're going to share everything and I'm going to have a thousand people watch. <laughs> be awesome. And that didn't happen <laughs> at all. So it's, it's been a much more normal progression of mm -hmm. you know, years to build up that kind of a following that some people have. Uh, but it's, it's definitely started to catch on a little bit more in the last like two or three weeks. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think I, I broke a kind of point, especially within the Twitter algorithm to where, you know, almost everything I tweet has like three or four likes on it instead of just getting completely ignored. And I'm about to break a thousand followers, fingers crossed. <laughs> <Soon>. <laughs> <laughs> if the bird doesn't keep it keep up it's, it's the first like thousand i feel like that is the hardest and then mm -hmm. once you hit that point it seems like the followers come easier although twitter is different from facebook um in a lot of ways and yeah so yeah it, sometimes you just have to play with it that's yeah that's for sure <laughs> i'm definitely when i started out i was you know trying to like follow all the rules and you know because like uh joe rogan doesn't smoke on his podcast anymore and i was like oh i probably shouldn't do that either and then <laughs> i was like fuck it i'm gonna have there's, there's gonna be significantly better content if i'm drinking and smoking on the show so <laughs> <laughs> well it's three o'clock in the afternoon like i mean <laughs> right there 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 is um irish cream in this coffee and there is a joint in the ashtray so oh, we're boy. good <laughs> <laughs> uh, but actually one of the things that i that i wanted to to ask you about was kind of similar 
similar question. You know, you have a fairly popular, you know, pages on Twitter and Facebook, and you know, you have the the uh, the website selling merchandise and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And, you know, you've got fifteen thousand people reading your daily thoughts. How <laughs> how does that feel? It's um, I mean, between the two audiences, it's like closer to fifty thousand now, which is a lot to keep up with, but um i don't know like it's it's different it's kind of strange sometimes because i mean we're all susceptible to making mistakes so there is definitely that added pressure of like if you make a mistake literally fifty thousand people might be angry with you might try to rip you a new one might abandon you might <laughs> like all these things like there's so many things that can go wrong and the bigger your audience is the more um the more pressure that that is. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, that's that's definitely a thing. I don't, I don't, I've never really sat and thought about it, like whether or not that actually causes me any anxiety. But um, <laughs> now that I've said that out loud, I'm probably going to start thinking. About <laughs> well, sorry to cause more anxieties in your life, <laughs> uh, but I definitely there's there's definitely two ways to kind of go about that train of thought though and you know we see a lot of people especially on on Twitter I'm going to harp on more cuz I think it's has more of this than Facebook is the people that get that following and realize how how much negativity can increase your following and then just go like post obnoxious hot takes and tear people down yeah. and and then there's other people like yourself or like Reed who kind of try to try to be a little bit nicer about things and you know the algorithm doesn't necessarily reward you for mm -hmm. that kind of behavior but the people do and you know you get to at least have a more a, a more happy time on the internet yeah again sorry about the noise you're good <laughs> Um, I'm having work done on my house and I did not know that it was happening today. So yeah, that's fun. Um, no, my, so my most recent experience with this was misinterpreting a tweet that Dave Smith put out. Dave Smith obviously has a huge following. Mm -hmm. Um, and the tweet to me was a little ambiguous and I interpreted it in the wrong way. And I quote tweeted it when I probably should have just left a comment. And I just said, I hope this isn't about this other issue. And granted, at the time, that whole week, I had taken Twitter off my phone. I was trying to take like a little bit of a break and just log on like once in the morning for maybe 30, 45 minutes. And then once in the, you know, late into the night, like, okay, this is, I, I say late, but I'm over 30. So I like night or 10 o'clock <laughs> um, and stay on for like 30, 45 minutes and then go to bed. Mm -hmm. um, so that it wasn't like so pervasive in my life. So if he had been talking about other issues and this tweet happened to pertain to those, I probably would not have seen it. And I did not keep that in mind when I did this. So he jumped my case. He had every right to, and I deleted it. And I said, yeah, I was wrong. I can't stand by a false statement like that. Mm -hmm. um, and it seemed like the following had a pretty good, positive reaction to that like to an actual genuine apology please do not anybody watching or listening please do not set yourself up for these opportunities and think that it's going to like increase your you know notoriety or whatever of like being <laughs> a nice person um it was a genuine mistake so that that's been my experience like people are more willing to take you seriously when you show that you have humility and that you have common sense 
And that has kind of been my experience on Twitter. I don't know of anybody on Twitter that follows as many people that follow them, especially if they have a large following, like over 10,000 people. No one follows 10,000 people <laughs> on Twitter. So you can very much control what you intake from Twitter by keeping that side of it small. You can't always control who follows you unless you're, you know, very liberal with the block button. But um, so that you do have a little bit of, of, of control. But honestly, the weirdest thing about having an audience for me is when they see me in person, their reaction to me in person is like <laughs> the strangest thing that I have ever experienced. And I don't even have like a huge following. Like I said, you know, Dave Smith has way more followers than me. There are plenty of libertarians that do, mm -hmm. but it never fails to completely catch me off guard. If someone runs up to me in an event and is like, Oh my God, you're her. And I'm like, I am not Nicole Kidman. Like what? <laughs> No, it happened last year at YALCON or 2019 in YALCON. This kid is probably 19 years old, ran up to me. It was probably his first Liberty event or one of the first ones he'd ever been to. And there's all these people there. And, you know, the big wigs at YL are there. Glenn Jacobs was there. Ron Paul was there. Kennedy was there. It was like a big deal. And I was even like a little bit like, you know, like, right. so, like I got to meet Ron Paul. That was huge. So he comes running up to me and it's just like, you're her. And I was like, um, yeah. Hi. Nice to meet you. Glenn Jacobs is over there. He's super cool. You should probably go talk to him. I'm always like divert. Like I just divert everyone because <laughs> I'm just awkward. I feel like that is how I would respond to that. Luckily, I've I've only gotten... I haven't gotten that kind of a thing from people that I don't know. I've gotten those weird, like, run into someone you only met online situations. Mm -hmm. But it's, like, friends on Facebook where I've interacted yeah. with them. And we, we kind of sort of recognized each other, or at least they recognized me and were able to introduce themselves. Like, oh, I'm the dude with the this profile picture. I'm like, oh, okay. You yeah. know. <laughs> that, happens so many stock accounts. that happens a lot at, like, LP conventions, which are mm -hmm. more... Um, people that are probably more likely to be on my actual friends list. So if they come up to me and they're like, oh yeah, I'm so-and-so, I'm like, oh, hi, you know, because I interact with their posts and they interact with mine and like there's kind of this mutual thing. But when it's people that follow a public figure page, especially once they get to a certain size, you don't know everybody who follows you. Like you just right. don't. And I have even, I have even gone so far as like when I was using dating apps, which I'm not now, I just deleted them a couple months ago. I There was a few times, there was maybe two or three times where I would scroll to the bottom of their profile and it will tell you like what their interests are, like according to their Facebook, like what pages they have liked mm -hmm. and music mm -hmm. that they've liked. And if I saw my page listed, I was like unmatch. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Why? If they're a fan, that means like, because I the... feel like that would create a very weird dynamic that I am not into at all. And there's always, <laughs> and there's always that that danger, I guess, of once your following gets so big. And I think this is way more common for women than it is for men. Like I've had men try to get to know me. And then there's always that fear in the back of my mind that if they get to know me personally, then they could potentially try to use anything or everything in my personal life to burn me later publicly. Mm -hmm. And I, you you probably, if you follow me, you probably notice I don't talk about my child very much. 
Well, alrighty then. <laughs> um, I don't talk about my son very much because I want to keep him out of this. Mm-hmm. And if someone were to like cross that line for me, that would be unforgivable. And right. I just, I just don't take that risk. So there are limits to the, uh, celebritarian status, I guess you could say. Um, <laughs> it's definitely not something that I'm like very comfortable with embracing or anything like that. I'm like I said, I always am like diverting attention to people who I think are way cooler than me. Like by all means, go have a conversation with Glenn Jacobs. Like I want to have a conversation with him too. <laughs> right. Um, that's honestly the reason that, uh, cause when I, when I started the show, it used to be, um, it was two episodes a week and one was an interview style like this. And then one was, you know, uh, 45 minutes or so of me, like, I was kind of trying to copy like the Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj or like something like that, mm-hmm. where it was very topical, you know, I would like break down bills or stuff like that. And, and I found a, I don't have the time right now to, to put together those solo videos with all mm-hmm. of that information. I just, I cannot read a 150 page bill right now. Just not, not right. in my, not in my time. I could do that in March during quarantine when I had literally nothing going on, mm-hmm. but right now there's too much. But also I found that I learned more just having a two hour conversation with someone like Justin O'Donnell or Valerie Sarwark than mm-hmm. I did trying to teach some people about some stuff, you know? Yeah. There, there are so many cooler people in the Liberty movement to hear from. I would much rather uh, just be a platform for them to be able to talk about their life experiences rather than me talk about mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Or share life experience. Like, you know, if you have similar life experiences, that's always mm-hmm. good too. Especially if you have like, you know, you've maybe had the same lived experience, but you have different perspectives on how that went. Um, mm-hmm. I always find those conversations to be the most productive and the most enlightening for viewers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always find it very interesting. Other people that were raised um, like very Christian, conservative, Republican, mm-hmm. which of those three things, or like in what order they left those three groups. Because oh, I was I was raised all three of those things and would now consider myself none of those things. Oh, um, cool. Right. And it's, and it's always very intriguing because there's a lot of people that, you know, join the LP still as like super conservative Christians and then kind of move uh towards a more socially liberal point of view or you know myself personally i i was kind of in the process of throwing away my faith when i also threw away the republicanism because it was the same thing it was the evangelical support for trump basically that pushed me off from both of those groups simultaneously um Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there's plenty of other, I've always kind of found it interesting which, which order people walk away from how they were raised. (laughs) I walked away from all of it at the same time. (laughs) Nice. Overachiever. (laughs) (laughs) What was the, uh, what was the the trigger for that? Gay marriage. Mm. It was a gay marriage debate. I was in high school. I graduated in 2006. So that was, you know, I was 14, 15, you know, somewhere around there when that whole debate was happening. And um, I think I even tweeted about it the other day. And I just got to the, like, I just, I was hearing these conversations in the hallways at school, you know, amongst my peers and the teachers weren't really talking about, at least they weren't talking about with the students, which I think that's appropriate. You know, they shouldn't be unless specifically asked. And even in that case, I think they should kind of redirect and say, 
you know, I think you should talk to your parents about this, or I think you should talk to someone else in your life about this. I am, you know, I'm your teacher and that's, you know, not my role in your life. But, um, yeah, I just got to the point where I was, I I remember literally walking through the hallway at school and overhearing a couple of people having Mm -hmm. a discussion about it and thinking like, like I kind of looked and then I looked back and then I just had this like flash and I was just like, who the hell cares? Like, why would the government care what you are doing inside your own home? And furthermore, why would you care what someone's doing inside their own home? Of course, I had no idea that that was like, you know, a political ideology at the time. Mm. And I was just like, why can't everything be like that? I literally remember like walking to math class and thinking, why can't everything be like that? Like, why can't everyone just leave everybody alone? <laughs> It's it's such a like earth shattering realization when 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 that finally clicks of like mm-hmm. my moral code doesn't have to be everyone's moral code. Right. Yeah, I think I for me the 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 issue that that clicked on was probably one of the weirder ones for it to click and especially I remember it was probably like 12 or 13. Um I was talking to my mom about prostitution and and i i just kind of you know i understood at that point the basic concept of sex and i was like you know people do it people enjoy it some people don't hold it to the same value that we do as christians so mm-hmm. why why do we have why why is it illegal that doesn't even make sense yeah and, i totally agree um uh, i didn't I didn't, there were, there were a few social issues that I was kind of a little bit late to the party on just because I didn't quite understand them. And because I came from that conservative, you know, I was raised by Republicans, you know, my, my key issues coming into libertarianism were, you know, the national debt and gay, the gay marriage debate. And uh, there were probably a couple of other decriminalization was one. And those were kind of the three main ones for me, two of them being social issues. But a lot of them were, you know, associated with the national debt and tax issues, fiscal issues. Mm-hmm. So there were some, um, I do remember the death penalty. I was a little bit, I I said for years, like, I'm on the fence. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't know. I, I don't know how I feel about this. And that was, you know, my early 20s. Mm. And then finally, a few years ago, um, I became friends with Hannah Cox, who is now the national um, manager at conservatives concerned about the death penalty Mm. and becoming friends with her and (laughs) reading a lot of the things that she wrote or that she shared, you know, data that she shared and statistics and things like that. I was already kind of leaning towards the side of like being anti-death penalty, but then there were a couple of articles that I read, you know, from her about people that had been wrongfully convicted and wrongfully executed. And I was just like, that should never happen. We can't do this like ever. Um, and that just sort of like pushed me over the edge. So that, that one was one that I came to a little bit later. Mm -hmm. Um, but now it's something I'm very passionate about. Um, and I have her to thank for that, for, you know, educating me and sharing things with me. So, well, her audience, but, you know, being friends with someone who shares things like that, you know, you feel like, uh, they're kind of sending it to you directly, I guess. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I honestly, that's one of the the big libertarian issues that I'm still a little bit on the fence with myself. 
I definitely feel like in the structure that we have right now, uh, we can't trust it. You know, there's obviously because of, you know, lots and lots and lots of statistics saying that plenty of people have been wrongfully convicted. I think we need to fix the justice system, but I'm still on the fence of like, if we're able to fix the justice system to where almost no one is ever wrongfully convicted, can we then allow it? I'm still, that's, that's definitely one that I'm still a little bit on the fence for. My favorite question to ask, no. my favorite question to ask when someone is at that point is what's your threshold? How many people do you think are worth how many innocent people do you think are worth one guilty person? How many lives are you willing to trade? That's so, a great question. <laughs> <laughs> because ultimately, that's what you're doing. You're mm -hmm. trading that 4% or 2% or 1% margin of error for 99% you know, accuracy. So do you consider it a success? And do you think the families of those who've been wrongfully executed consider it a success? If their family member, their brother, their sister, their son is the one who gets the needle in their arm when they shouldn't have, mm -hmm. do you think that they're okay with that? You you actively promoted trading that life for someone else who can who committed a heinous crime, which in my mind, recognizing that someone deserves the death penalty is your humanity showing. So recognizing that someone is deserving of that punishment is entirely separate from the actual legislative process of how that happens mm -hmm. and of passing laws, you know, prohibiting or allowing policies like the death penalty. And then you throw into it this giant criminal justice system that really doesn't work that well. Um, and that adds a whole nother layer of complication to the issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would definitely... Um, it's it's definitely one of those issues that I'm like, you know, err, err on the side of caution, um, you know, basically like abolish it and then revisit it after we've fixed the criminal justice system and say, hey, do we have, have we, is there a possibility to get to like a 0% wrongful conviction? I don't think, I don't know. But like, if there is, if we get there, then maybe we can revisit the issue of the death penalty yeah i mean revisiting an issue every so often to see you know is the legislation that's currently in place is that are the regulations that are currently in place are those working are those not working we have to do that with everything you know and the death right. penalty is no exception to that the criminal justice system is no exception to that um monetary policy like all of those things all of those things are susceptible to that um process we should always be readdressing these things every you know, five, 10 years legislatively to see, you know, is it working? Is it not working? Is it right. creating unintended consequences that are causing us to have to make the government bigger to address those? And then why and how do we address the root cause? And that's something that um, I'm dealing with in an article that I'm writing right now, connecting generational trauma and poverty to the government perpetuation of both of those things, especially in minority communities, and how that contributes to the mass incarceration issue, the drug war, um, violence in inner cities, like all of these things, they're all connected. And government, big government programs actually perpetuate that and continue that cycle. 
Yeah, there is there is very much evidence statistically to back up government bad. Like, <laughs> like people keep people keep going at libertarians in general, and I see it constantly. Of like, show me one good example of libertarian government, and like, okay, I'll give you that. There aren't too many good examples because we haven't really tried it much. But give me a good example of government, like anywhere. Yeah. Because I can show you a hundred times where the government has ruined people's lives and murdered people and right. <laughs> started wars, genocided then, entire populations. Yeah, and it's usually directly proportional to how large the government is and how how big the population is. Mm -hmm. So, like America, not doing so great right now. The USSR didn't make it so you know like it it seems like the the size of the government and the size of the population are directly proportional to how badly that government functions and how many lives get ruined in the process mm -hmm. so um yeah it's <laughs> yeah, most democratic socialists like to point to success stories in europe of countries that are like the size of delaware and and okay, sure, if Delaware wanted to be its own little socialist nation, it would probably work out all right. They're not very big. They could kind of control control what happens. It's it you would be able to see the product of your labor and you wouldn't be paying for people hundreds of thousands of miles away, you know. It right. might work in Delaware, not the US. <laughs> yeah, and your pop it it, de it definitely directly correlates to how homogenous your population is too. You know, are they are they all mostly white? Are they all mostly minority? Are they, you know, all of, is there a good range as far as socioeconomic status to support a, an economy from bottom to top? You know, like, are there people in that society that want to be the garbage man that want to serve your burger at McDonald's? Like right. if those people do not exist in your society, you have to figure out like, okay, then who does that job? If nobody wants to do it, then, mm -hmm. you know, and we had that issue in California, um, when the migrant worker pool dried up because of immigration policy, suddenly thousands of acres of farmland had crops that were just going bad. Mm -hmm. And the farmers were saying, we can't find anyone to come work for us at all. Right. What do we do? And so, you know, again, unintended consequences. So we created another problem that then government had to probably come in, step in and say, oh, well, we'll pay you a subsidy. Mm -hmm. We'll give you this, you know, and it's like, if you had just let them, you know, do what they've always done and hire the laborers that they wanted to hire, then all those laborers would have had, you know, a, a living to feed their families with and the crops would have gotten harvested and the supply chain would have gotten interrupted and you wouldn't have had to spend more tax money giving these people subsidies. Yeah. Instead, you would have gotten tax money from all of these new jobs right you would have gotten the tax money from the sale of the goods mm -hmm. and and as the goods travel through you know that um i guess a sales funnel if you want to call it that or you know the production process um yeah it would have created value for the government as it went along because people would have been paying taxes you know and, and things like that. You would have been paying for shipping. You would have been paying sales tax on the end products, all those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But instead the government threw a bunch of that money away and then threw a bunch more money at the problem instead. <laughs> Great. Great job. Great job guys. <laughs> Bravo. Well done.
And that always I mean, happens. Nobody, yeah. I, for some reason, no one can connect the dots and figure out that, oh, hey, so we tried throwing a bunch of money at education and what happened? It all got eaten up by administrative costs and standardized testing. It mm -hmm. made very little difference in the actual classroom to children who needed that education, to teachers who needed, you know, who deserved higher pay, who were really good teachers. You know, mm -hmm. like it didn't make a difference at that level. And that's what they were trying to affect. So it, it just, and we've tried that many times in many different ways. We've tried it with our public policy that has to do with poverty, education. We have tried it with lots of other things too. And it never works. So nope. if that's not working, then we should be able to say, okay, government, you kind of suck at this. Let us try. Right. And we'll see how it goes. <laughs> right. Give us a shot. Like yeah. we it's haven't, we haven't first. really had a chance to prove our theories work since like 1801 or so. At least, you know, uh, well, no, it well, would have been 90, 96, 1796 when Adams got elected. It was kind of yeah. the, the start of the downfall, in my opinion. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it, for a long time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Jeff, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe did like enough uptick to keep us plateauing for a little bit, mm -hmm. but it was it was a pretty quick downfall after like Adams and Adams too. Yeah. <laughs> I actually think I would go back further to my favorite president, Thomas Jefferson and say that the embargo act, which failed miserably mm. and, you know, attempted to control the economy in a way that was extremely detrimental. Um, I would say it probably goes back to that. So it's probably even a little bit earlier than what you think it is. It's, it's wild. Yeah. Government yeah. bad. <laughs> Government bad. Uh yeah, somewhere somewhere between that or the um the Sedition Act. Um, yeah. like like one of one of those two things was the the start of the the downturn and you know, big government. And and the worst part is is you know, you had people like Jefferson who was the biggest proponent of basically libertarian ideals during the founding of the country, as well as his good friend, James Madison, who both helped grow the government in ways that we've been trying for decades and centuries at this point to undo. Right, exactly. So. All government bad. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they also, I mean, the other thing that people don't realize or maybe they realize it, but they think it was just kind of isolated, is that the founding fathers were so incredibly petty to each other. Oh yeah. All of the time. So people look around and they're just like, what happened to civil what happened to civil politics? Like, I don't understand. Where's the civil discourse? And I'm like, we never had any. Never. <laughs> Like, the very no, beginning of this know. was not civil. The Constitution yeah. wasn't civil because Articles of Confederation existed. Like, right. none of this of has been civil. Was not civil. The Declaration of Independence was an act of treason. Like, we, we go hard all the way. Right. So it's really not that surprising that we are where we are right now in, in political discourse because mm -hmm. 
we've been here all along. I mean, I could probably find an example of every single president in our history having been petty or underhanded to another opponent or even someone in their own party. Right. Every single one of them. Yeah. I think it's funny. We've come full circle from uh, the election of 1800 to the election of 2020, where we had Jefferson released um, news articles that Adams had died weeks before the election. And uh, it actually worked and people didn't vote for him. And it helped contribute to the fact that he was a sitting president who took third place in an re-election. Right. Hasn't happened since. And then we had 2020 where someone actually died a week and a half before the election and still won. <laughs> there was a, a state house representative in oh, that's Montana right. that died from COVID and still won the election. <laughs> I forgot about that. That was so wild. Oh my gosh. No. The, okay. So the other thing is that that journalist that wrote those articles for Jefferson Ended up being found drowned face down in a river. Yes, James Callender. Got out of prison. Such a cool story. There's a drug <laughs> history episode on it, and it's fantastic. Yes, it's called James. Cal it's like the story of James Callender. So look up the drug history episode. Look yes. up. Just Google James Callender. It's C A L L. I think there's two L's in his name. Yeah, his it's not name. spelled the same way as like a calendar with dates on it. No, no, it's not. <laughs> It's two L's, but just look. I don't know. Just type in. Some yeah, I'll put the I'll put the link to the to the drunk history episode in the description. Yes, please do. It's really funny. Oh, it's so great. Cause yeah, it's like it's like one of three people um, might have killed him, and that's Adams, Jefferson, and Hamilton. And it's like, hmm. <laughs> yikes! It's, uh, yeah, we did not start out civil. No, we never have been. And people are just like, oh, civil discourse. And I'm just like, I, no, mm -hmm. <laughs> we don't do that here, apparently. No. no. It is interesting. Um, I, I need to go back and find it because I, I watched a really cool graphic a while back that kind of plotted out the different members of Congress and, and how often they voted together and and with each other throughout the course of like uh it started somewhere in like the early 1900s mm -hmm. to now and and it starts out pretty like bunched together in the middle and then just slowly slowly trickles i have seen way that. way way out and mm -hmm. it's sad it's like yeah, it's extremely sad. extremely sad because you you're left with like rand paul tulsi gabbard and um Bernie Sanders, who do any kind of like bipartisan stuff, and that's right. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's very few, and even less now that Tulsi Gabbard and Justin Amash are both gone. Although, I I'm starting to see like a little glimmer of hope for Peter Meyer, who replaced Justin Amash. I even yeah. tweeted at him last night and was like, I don't want to make a Michigan water joke, but this man is talking about principles the same way that you did. So whatever you're drinking in Michigan. Please spread it around because apparently it's working. Yes. Um, I, I definitely, I was hesitant about Meyer in the beginning. I was actually in Michigan during the Republican primary this, mm -hmm. uh, for, in 2020. And I was, I was on the, the east side of the state closer to Detroit. Um, 
but I was still kind of following the state politics, especially because I was really big into Amash at the time and, you know, just curious of who was going to replace him. And I was kind of like, eh, he seems okay, but he still seems like a Republican. But yeah. in his defense, he was running in a Republican primary. So you have to sound like a Republican. But the last, yeah, the last two weeks have given me some hope for him. And we might have a couple more liber liberty-minded people in Congress, at least. Yeah. Hopefully he has a coffee date with Thomas Massey soon, and Massey can just, like, keep him on the light side. That'd mm -hmm. be cool. <laughs> yeah. I would love for them to also um, assimilate Matt Gates back into the group post-Trump. I don't know. I think that that might be a lost cause. <laughs> it could be. I don't know. I think I personally think that he would be the Republicans' best choice for 24. No. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think they're going to go Nikki Haley or one of the Trump kids. If they can't have Daddy Trump, they're going to go with whichever Trump kid Daddy says is running. And the the definite, you know, insinuation is that, well, you're getting Ivanka, but Dad's here too. Mm -hmm. And it's just going to be like Bill and Hillary Clinton. Like, mm -hmm. it was Hillary for most of the time. And I think eventually people realize that. They're going to realize it from day one with Trump. If yeah. he doesn't run for president, if the Democrats him <laughs> and make it impossible for him to run for president, his children will run for president. One of them will. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely see that as a strong possibility. I think it's a dumb move on the part of the GOP, um, but it's definitely a move that they would make. I would much, 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 much rather see Ivanka run for mayor of New York City. You know, Ivanka Trump versus Andrew Yang, that would be very interesting. Mm -hmm. It would be the most expensive mayoral race in the history of the country. That's and the most sure. probably too. Right, which would only be good for our candidate because if the entire country is focused on this race with millions of dollars of ad spend, like it can only help for publicity for our candidate who um, it looks like it should be Stacey Pressman, which who's awesome. And, you know, I don't least, know about her, so I'll have to check her out. Well, she will be on the, uh, the live stream on the 29th with us. Oh, cool. So you'll get to meet her. Awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, very excited about about that there's going to be some cool people um but yeah i mean i'm i know it's it's definitely like kind of utopian optimism thinking but i'm like fingers crossed this is a really heated mayoral race and and it helps us get a little bit extra press than we normally would maybe maybe <laughs> we saw what happened in the i mean we saw what happened to that assumption at the federal level in 2020, and it was not a good result. So mm -hmm. um, we fought against that constantly with Joe. It yeah. was it was so disheartening to see her travel the country, and for me to get the emails every day of okay, Joe's stops were here and here yesterday, and here's all the local coverage, and you know read through the links and figure out which one you want to share on social media. And I was just like, wow, you know, there's three pieces from Memphis and there's two from here and there's four from here. And wow, she got, you know, evening news coverage in, in Minnesota and like, you know, all these different states. 
I don't know if I had any of that information correct. I'm just guessing. I'm just saying we had so much local coverage of her. Mm-hmm. And then the only national coverage we had at all was Kennedy. Right. That, mm-hmm. that was it. Yeah, I'm definitely I'm definitely banking on the smaller target being more attainable mm-hmm. with with this year's race. Um because we did see local news actually mm-hmm. respond to Joe. So if we have, you know, local radio shows and the small newspapers and you know the free newspapers that they hang hand out on the subway covering Stacy, that's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and it's everyone we have to get to. We don't have to reach the people out in the middle of nowhere that that don't pay attention to the specific tiny little town newspaper that decided right. to cover us because there's so many of them in New York that I I'm optimistically hoping that that we're able to get a little bit more of that. And plus, Stacy has. Um, you know, a career and some repertoire with media. She's got uh, Larry Sharp kind of backing her up. She's got that's good news. Other people, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Larry Larry Sharp basically recruited her to the party and and set her up for this. And you know, it's what we need to do more of. We need to, you know, we can teach the people in the party how to run and how to be good and and mm-hmm. you know push people up the ranks that way. But we also need to be recruiting people that are already capable of running. (laughs) Absolutely. Especially in districts where, you know, especially at the local level in districts where there are candidates that run unopposed, there are incumbents that are retiring. There are, you know, special elections happening that are in a weird off year or at a different time of year because there will be a smaller voter turnout. So you can net more of those voters you don't have to try as hard. You're not trying to reach 30,000 people because you know only 10,000 of them are actually going to go vote. So, you know, your target is a lot smaller. You don't have to yeah. spend as much money. Um, you don't you don't need as much infrastructure on your campaign to handle that kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we absolutely need to focus on those. I I never liked the I never liked the the push for every libertarian should run for every any office ever i never liked that i don't think that's a sound strategy because then you have people that are you know not serious candidates or they can't raise money or they are not marketable or they have no idea what they're doing and not only that but we have a very small pool of activists and volunteers that work those campaigns so not only are they you know, like they might be an okay candidate, like, you, eh, okay, you know, we can polish this guy up and make him look, you know, like he's ready for the job. But then you have no one to help him mm-hmm. or her. You know, you have no one to help them. They might get a campaign manager out of it. Maybe. Mm-hmm. They might get a couple people to help them knock doors. That's it. That's not enough to win. Mm-hmm. So I don't like that strategy. I do not like, oh, we should put a libertarian in every single you know, slot on all the ballots in the state. You can't physically do that. It is not possible. And it's not even a good idea to do that. Mm-hmm. The only exception to that is if you need like a full slate because it's straight ticket voting and you need a libertarian option on the ballot. Mm-hmm. That that's, an, that's a reasonable, you know, assumption to make. Like, okay, let's let's at least give people a full slate of candidates to vote for if we have to do straight ticket voting in our state. Mm-hmm. But other than that, <laughs> Don't do 
Yeah, I'm not terribly against the concept of like paper candidates who, you know, just make us kind of look better when the ballots come out, as long as they're not siphoning away support uh, from from serious candidates. Don't run a half-assed campaign. Either just be a paper candidate that only posts on social media and doesn't take any dollars or any volunteer hours or anything like that, and just kind of gets one percent and makes the ballot look better because the libertarian line is full, okay, do that. Or run a real campaign. But that uh, creates a PR problem because then does. you have because then you perpetuate the assumption that libertarian candidates don't put the work in. Mm -hmm. You know, then the voters see that. The voters see, oh look at this guy, he got one percent just because he had a Facebook page. And yeah. then so then when you do later on, maybe the next cycle have a serious candidate that runs for that same office, people are gonna be like, oh it's another one of those. And they're not going to take it seriously from day one. If you come out strong and you come out swinging, if a libertarian hasn't run in that race in a decade and you have a great candidate to run in that race and you put him in there or her in there and they blow people's socks off. And even if they don't win, people are just like, wow, they gave it their all. Like that was good. Like good on you. Yeah. I would much rather have that even if it only happens once a decade, then I would have a paper candidate every single cycle that makes people think every presidential cycle well you guys disappear when it's not a presidential election and you don't do anything mm -hmm. you know i don't like that i don't like having to fight against that narrative it's it's so damaging for the party yeah yeah it's definitely it's definitely a habit that we've kind of gotten into of you know wanting to make it us look more official by being on every line on the ballot but it's not actually look more official because we're running joke campaigns. Yeah. And it's funny, base, the, the campaign that you described a few moments ago was almost word for word describing my city council race in 2019. Um, you know, I consider myself a polishable person um, yeah. where, where I like could have done something and I, and I ran and I tried, but I, you know, I've been honest on the show plenty of times. I didn't try as hard as I could have. I raised $110. I had no volunteers. I had no campaign staff. I had um, I had two people that helped me out. One person helped me with the website and canvassed with me once. And the other person canvassed with me one other time. Uh, that's it. That, that was that was my campaign. And I broke records. Right. Because, because it was also what you were talking about, where it was a special election on a weird off year. It was the only city council seat in the entire um, city that was up for re-election. Um, and it was also at the <laughs> same time as the person whose seat I was running to fill was running for re-election in the seat he just moved up to. So his entire district came out to vote for him, which is... or which is why I lost quite badly still because we had almost double voter turnout percentage in my district than the rest of the city because everyone showed up to vote for their old city councilman for public mm -hmm. advocate and then also voted for the person he endorsed. Right. So she got like 97% or 96%, something like that. I ended up with 3.2, <laughs> but still a record percentage for a libertarian party in New York city. So. Right, and if you and if you need that kind of a percentage to to stay on the ballot for ballot access reasons, by all means, run your race, do the thing. But I I'm just saying I don't see, I, I see it from both sides. Like I see how libertarians in our circles 
see that it makes us more legitimate. We feel better about ourselves when we have all those slots full. But mm -hmm. to an outsider, it doesn't look the same. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in no way defending how I how I ran my campaign. <laughs> for the record, um, it was awful. Um, I and that's why I have said it's that I probably won't run again. Against you, because in some in some cases, uh, depending on what area of the country that you're in, what race you're running in, what you know, like I said, if it's a special election or not, who else is running, mm -hmm. you could win a race like that in a different district in right. a different state. You know, like that's winnable. So I, I am very much for uh, strategic campaigning for libertarians and not just throwing anybody and everybody who's willing to be a name, you know, on the ballot because that doesn't ever, it doesn't ever get us what we want. We've tried that and we've had very little success with that strategy there. You know, it's great to say, oh, we have 800 plus candidates running. <laughs> But then if you have to turn around after election day and say, well, only 50 got elected, that's not that great. You know, I would rather say, I would rather have us say, we ran 100 candidates and 90 of them won. That makes us sound more legitimate. Yeah. You know, oh, our win ratio is 90%. You know, that's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. So if we could, it's just kind of tweaking our, our mindset we have to we have to evaluate ourselves the way that people who are not libertarians evaluate us so if they are evaluating us in a certain way it does absolutely no good for us to continue evaluating ourselves in a completely different way yes i 100 percent agree with you on that and we we see that in so many conversations especially online but even in person um, you know, talking about what metrics should we value our party by? Is it vote totals? Is it membership? Is, are, we should value our metrics how the rest of the country values our metrics, which is vote totals and 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 win totals. Actually, right. really, you know, we can't we can't pat ourselves on the back for too long about Ricky Harrington getting thirty something percent. You know, it was a great race. He did a great job. Like. All power to him. He's an amazing dude, but you know that's still not a win, right? And yeah, no one, and no one outside of the party sees it really well too. He broke every record I think that any libertarian gubernatorial candidate had ever made, but it was still only thirteen percent. Like I'm proud of the work that those people did on that campaign. They did a great job. Right. I kind of you know gave him an assist with some text message servicing and things like that. So. I mean, it was great to see those vote totals. I was so hoping that they would be higher, but um, I think we're we're not a straight ticket voting state. But um, yeah, it was it it came when it came down to the wire. I think people got scared um, all over the country. That was not you know isolated to one state or one district. I think people were scared. I mean, mm -hmm. and being scared or being able to make people afraid is an extremely uh, effective political tool. I have said in the past that the Republicans and Democrats have mastered how to make their bases afraid. They want you afraid because if you're not afraid of losing your health care or losing your job to an immigrant or not being able to receive benefits or whatever, you are going to vote for whoever you need to to continue getting those services or to prevent someone else from getting those services or getting that job or whatever, because you were scared for yourself and your family. Yep. 
Yeah, and I that, think was, I mean, that's their main tool is fear. Yeah, I think it was interesting to watch the rainwater campaign towards the end because the Republican Party used the exact opposite strategy uh, to torpedo his campaign in the end as they did um, Larry's in New York. With, but basically the same thing, which was pretending that the race was closer than it was. Mm -hmm. You know, we had, you know, polling in New York in 2018 for months had mm -hmm. Cuomo at, you know, 50 to 60% Mark Molinaro somewhere in the 30s. You know, he had no shot at beating Andrew Cuomo. Everyone in the state knew it. But about three days before election day, almost every major news outlet posted a new poll that put uh, Mark Molinaro like six points behind Cuomo. So everyone that was going to vote for Larry because there was no hope in the Republican Party suddenly went, oh, my God, there's a chance. Mm hmm. Let's go vote. And, you know, Cuomo got 72% of the vote. <laughs> the poll was a blatant lie. Right. But it worked. And then we saw a similar thing in Indiana where people were claiming that that the Democrat was going to come closer and that they really needed to show up for the Republican and, and make sure that the Democrat didn't win. The Democrat didn't come anywhere near winning. <laughs> no. Mm -mm. I think he was low 20s or something yeah. like 26%, 23%. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, for Don to be at 20 to for Don to be at 13 percent, you know, 10 points behind the Democrat. That's, you know, we we personally I was hoping that if he didn't win, that he at least beat the Democratic challenger, that he at mm -hmm. least came in second, because that probably would have made national news. Yes, for sure. I would I would love to see us at least start taking second place in a couple of these races yeah, it would be really nice <laughs> it would be i was kind of hoping for the same thing for larry and he ended up taking fourth and that was that was extra sad losing to howie hawkins um, yeah but at least we got to smack him back this year so yeah, yeah. that's true that <laughs> Uh, so one of the things that that we talk a lot about on the show is is kind of the the difficulty to get involved with the LP, um, but you kind of are a vast exception to that and got kind of uh, you you got involved pretty quickly and pretty high up. Um, so I'm curious, uh, you know, what what did you do so special to get yourself on uh, on a Joe Jorgensen campaign? Um, I worked with Gary Johnson. Like, well, I worked for a super PAC that supported Gary Johnson in 2018. So that was like my first paid, you know, political gig. Before that, I was just, you know, volunteering and trying to help the state party in the state I lived in. And, um, you know, I was just trying to help people wherever I could. So it's, uh, it really comes down to, I think, a matter of marketing yourself. Um, it does help to have that social media presence of like an audience that is behind you because I do think it makes other people see you as uh, more legitimate or more serious about it. Even though at that time my page was still very new. And so it was mostly just like memes because it was just, I didn't know what I was doing. I just started the page to keep all my political stuff off my personal page. So, you, cause all through 2016, I was like sharing Gary Johnson memes and stuff like this. And I think like tons of people muted me, like my friends and family, cause they were just like, oh my God, here we go again. And so after the election, I was like, okay, I get it. You wanna see pictures of my kid. You don't wanna hear about my political opinions and I still value you as a friend. So 
you know, I'll, I'll separate this. And mm -hmm. if you want to follow it, then you can. And, uh, oh my gosh, I had like, I had less than a hundred followers for like months, months. <laughs> and then, you know, it slowly climbed. Like we were talking about in the beginning, like that, that growth is just super, super slow. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I had a meme that went viral after, after a, a shooting somewhere. And I, I, I posted a pro, you know, gun, anti-gun control meme and it went viral. And the page suddenly went from like 800 followers to like 3,800 in like a week. Damn. And so, it, so I, I feel like there's always like that one, that one post or that one thought or tweet or whatever it might be um, that kind of pushes you over the edge and gets past that hump where you're not bogged down by the algorithm. And then all of a sudden it just started growing. And so by the time 2018 rolled around, I don't even remember how many followers I had, but, um, but people were aware that I was, you know, in this space and that I was talking about things, talking about issues. And I had made friends with people that worked for the party and uh, were, you know, other, other people that were chairs in their states and different things like this. And, and so it's really a matter of market being able to market yourself and your skills, but also of having a network so mm -hmm. that, and, and that's kind of what, that's kind of the purpose that I serve now. Like, you know, I think you've experienced it in the group chats that we're in when someone's like, how do I find out this? And I'm like, that's that person. And right. like, I, I always try to send people to someone in their state. You know, I've had people reach out to me and they're like, how do I get involved with the LP and you know, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, where do you live? And I'm like, oh, I know someone over there. And then I like pick this, the most sane libertarian that I know in that state. And I'm like, you should talk to this person because I don't want them to have a bad experience. I don't want them to go talk to somebody who's just like, you know, really off the wall. Mm -hmm. um, I, I want them to have a positive experience. So I, yeah, so, <laughs> so that's part of it too. And I'm not really being very specific, but honestly, like it's, it's just marketing and knowing people and, and networking. And once you have that first one kind of under your belt, then it gets a lot easier to like get the next one. And mm -hmm. then people start coming to you for help. And you, you know, the more campaigns you work, the bigger your network grows. Obviously a Joe Jorgensen campaign, that's a federal level campaign that is a national campaign is it takes a lot of bodies and it takes a lot of people. So I met so many new people in the Libertarian Party and the Libertarian movement from working for her campaign that are phenomenal people that I would suggest for, you know, any kind of work because they're great. And I felt the same way after I worked in New Mexico, you know, I, I came home and I was just like, wow, I met so many cool people. And, you know, now, I, now my network is bigger. So it's all about, you know, growing your network and, you know, knowing what, knowing what other people are good at. And when new people come in, you know, knowing who to send them to and knowing just kind of how to get them started off on the right foot so that they have a good experience and they have a positive uh, view of the party and the people that are in the party. Uh, I had somebody on TikTok comment and was like, oh, yeah, I took a, I took that political quiz and apparently I'm a libertarian. And I like had to make a video like response to him. And I was just like. I'm going to apologize in advance because we're all very passionate people. And if you want to ride or die libertarian, you have to have thick skin. Like it is not personal at all, but we are very territorial. I am so sorry. <laughs> like that's just going to be your experience. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's definitely, uh, you know, you mentioned being able to to funnel people to the correct individuals. That's mm-hmm. that's like the main task that I've been focusing on for the last like month or so. Uh, and with this kind of liberty unity movement growing, I'm able, I'm meeting a lot of new people and, and being more able to fulfill that goal. Uh, and it's, because it's definitely it's definitely something that I've been getting for for months of you know people commenting on stuff and saying you know hey I like you said you know I I just figured out I'm a libertarian how do I get involved or even you know I've been voting libertarian for three years but I saw how understaffed Jorgensen was and I want to make sure that no campaigns look like that again you know stuff like that i think i think a couple of the hiccups in her campaign definitely helped mobilize people to like get active which was i don't know a blessing and a curse i guess you know <laughs> yeah i mean you you definitely hit that threshold where it becomes okay now there's too many cooks in the kitchen and now we're having more problems um but for the most part libertarian campaigns could always use more bodies I feel like the main problem is that, and I've experienced this on both campaigns, is that volunteer. there's a very small percentage of volunteers that will actually do the things that they say that they are going to do. I ran a phone bank in New Mexico. I had over 100 people sign up. How many people actually consistently made phone calls? Like less than 50. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I was uh... a lot of time. Like it took so much time trying to vet these people, get them signed up, get them a username, get them logged in, get them trained, like all this kind of stuff. So I did that a hundred times over, just for such a small like return on investment. And mm-hmm. it's so frustrating. So if you are going to volunteer for a campaign, please be serious. <laughs> like, yes, we are begging you. <laughs> yes, for sure. I I don't know how this ended up being the skill that that's I ended up marketing, but somehow I'm a good manager. And so almost the only thing I've ever done in politics is volunteer coordination. Mm-hmm. And God, there's always an answer to that. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I definitely it's it's one of I think that's why I got thrown into it, because I'm kind of a jack of all trades. And so no one else wanted to do that shit. So <laughs> too, like I I sent my resume to the Joe campaign right after the nominating process. Um, but I sent it in to be to work with the data director or to be the data director. Like I was just like, I did that in New Mexico. So I've done it before. Like, let's just stick me in that role. And then they called me and they were like, we want you for social media. And I was like, but, oh, okay, sure. I could do that too, I guess. (laughs) Like, you know, sometimes people call you and they're just like, "I, I need you to do this thing. And, you know, yes or no. And, you know, that's, that's basically what happened. So, um, campaigns are always chaos but i yeah. feel I, I feel like this one was a little bit more chaotic than others have been maybe i'm wrong but i've only worked one presidential campaign i may work others and then find out no they're all this way they're they're all just crazy <laughs> i've also only worked one as tulsi gabbard so mm-hmm. I'm sure we could probably compare dysfunctionality pretty pretty equally there. Yeah, I mean, I uh, like the you guys at least got on the every ballot. Uh, sorry, what was that? 
the dysfunction I feel like is inevitable. Like there will always be dysfunction when your team is that large. Mm-hmm. Like it's just bound to happen. Yeah. And especially when your team is that large and completely full of individualists and people who refuse to um, give any power to any form of authority. Yeah. <laughs> luckily, luckily, Tulsi is a little bit of like a cult leader style personality. <laughs> and therefore, there was a solid like half to two thirds of her campaign that would have literally followed her into the lake of fire. So. So that was helpful. That was really, like really helpful. It would be like, I feel, I feel like an Amash campaign would be like that. Like everybody would just be like, we are doing this. We are ride or die. Do we need to get rid of the body? Like, how do we do that? You know, like. <laughs> I, <laughs> Sorry, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I think the LP could definitely use some more cult leader style people <laughs> who aren't actually cult leaders because I think we've had a couple of let's those. Find, let's find another descriptor for that type <laughs> of person because I feel like that has really bad connotations. Maybe cult 45. Maybe, yeah, you're probably right. But yeah. PR, David. PR. <laughs> uh, Tulsi can yell at me if she wants to. Um, <laughs> But it definitely, there was definitely the the other third of her campaign, which was basically all like registered L, big L libertarians, and wow. you know just a, a mess of dysfunctionality of like, you can't tell me what to say on Twitter. Like I'm not telling you what to say on Twitter. I'm just suggesting that you don't ruin her campaign with your moronic bullshit. Like <laughs> please. <laughs> Uh, and oh, luckily yeah. we had the we had the concept of Aloha to kind of wrap around, and she talked about it a lot, and so I didn't have to. And it was very, you know, it was it was a lot of times other people were keeping me in check on this one of like, David, you're not being Aloha, you're not, you know, you're 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 jumping on these volunteers for not doing what they were doing, you know, I. And there was there was this whole concept of like treat people well and do what you said you were gonna do and just like be a respectable person that yeah. permeated the campaign made it so much easier than the rest of the campaigns I've worked on. That's good. Yeah, we should definitely strive for that. I mean, and I think that the the concept of aloha that kind of came out of her campaign that she talked about a lot that just sort of I feel like it just sort of helped congeal people behind her. And that's really what we need. Like, there was nothing really that coalesced everyone behind Joe. Mm-hmm. Except maybe the bad story. I don't know. Like, that was nuts. That was that, so That definitely did something for us. That is for sure. That was the first time we got national news coverage. Right. <laughs> All right. New, new plan. All libertarian candidates need to get bit by some storm of wild animal. I know. Actually, I got a panicked phone call from the person that went with her to the ER, and they were like, please do not say anything on social media yet, but this is what is going on. And I was like, okay, are we sure? Like, what? (laughs) Did this really happen? (laughs) And then I hang up the phone, and I'm just like, God, that's so 2020. Like, you know, at this point, it was like, I think, August or September, you know, and I'm just like, I mean, I don't know what else could go wrong, but whatever. And then I posted on like my personal Twitter and my personal Facebook. I was just like, the bat story is better than Aleppo. So I'll take it. Like if it gets us national coverage and it's not for a gaffe, then cool. 
whatever, run with it. <laughs> like, I don't know. You can't oh, yeah. stop it. It's literally a force of nature. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was definitely one of those moments of 2020 where I was just like, are we, is this real? Did we, are, did we enter an alternate reality? Did the world actually end in 2012? And this is just some weird version of hell that we're living in that we didn't realize it was or like, right. Like, what's going on here? Did aliens do something? Was it Doctor Strange? Like, did he do the time thing? Like, what? You know, are we in an alternate dimension? No one knows anymore. No one knows. We're all just in a simulation. It's, <laughs> that's just... Uh. So, um, after, you know, uh, Joe and and everything, what's next on the agenda for the libertarian redhead? I am... I'm starting to get into business development. So I am starting to learn how to do business development, which I think will, I, which I think it's very interesting. So that's good because <laughs> I have to work on things that are interesting to me. Otherwise oh, yeah. I like, my, my brain does this thing, which I call unplugging all of the servers. So <laughs> where my brain is just like, oh, this is kind of boring. We're going to disassociate now. And I'm like, crap. I really needed to learn that thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, which is actually very typical of people who have ADHD, which is something that I suspect I have that I'm in the process of maybe getting diagnosed for. So, um, yeah, I have to work on things that are interesting to me. Otherwise it will not stick. Mm -hmm. So business development is very interesting to me. I, and it's applicable to, you know, any business. So it's very adaptable for, any type of business that you want to um, work in, any kind of industry that you want to work in. And <clears throat> I think also that, I think also there are a lot of lessons to be learned from that type of a process for political candidates too, and for campaigns and how campaigns are run and how those function. So I'm looking forward to kind of seeing where those things converge and where there might be a helpful, you know, overlap between those two. Mm -hmm. um things and maybe by the time 2024 rolls around like i can you know maybe put some of those into practice and just sort of see if it changes the game for us or um or for whatever candidate you know i choose to help with something like that so mm -hmm. um so that that's kind of on my agenda i like you said i have the merch store i am trying to grow that and there's uh you know all like all different kinds of little things that you need to learn when you do something like that. Um, it took me way longer to set it up than I thought it would. I have to, I had to teach myself how to do a lot of things, you know, to get it up and running. And now I'm working on learning how to run and, you know, fix up sales funnels and different things like that. So nice. I, it's, it's kind of a, a good combination of like personal, personal development type stuff, but also, you know, my own kind of business, business development education that I'm taking and applying to my own business and seeing what works and what doesn't. Um, and honestly, that's the way that I learned the best is to just do it. You know, that's exactly <laughs> how I've done social media this whole time. I've just, you know, I just started my own page and then I had no strategy whatsoever in the beginning. And um, for a long time, didn't have any kind of real, you know, strategy behind it. But now I'm a lot more strategic about things. And um, it has made a difference because the page is, on track to be at 40,000 followers by the end of this month. And wow, it's going to keep growing. Like I can't even imagine where it's going to be at the end of this year. If I don't get deplatformed. 
Um, so, I hear that. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, I I still don't know how I haven't gotten deplatformed from Same. anything I have ever. No idea. I like I I literally commented on Megan McCain's tweet earlier today talking about um like storming the Capitol again but better this time. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> and and no, nothing. Like <laughs> they didn't give you a warning. <laughs> nope. Nothing. Wow. I'm like, okay, apparently there's like I I guess you you probably need to have like at least a few followers for them to give a shit and I'm still under <laughs> a thousand so I maybe I'm not a threat to them yet maybe yeah I keep thinking that so last night a friend of mine <laughs> a friend of mine texted me and said so I have a friend that works at the Pentagon and I was like oh great where's this going and he goes he forwarded me one of your memes and said do you know this person keep in mind he's texting me so he has my phone number and I was like oh, I go, you should have asked him if he wanted my phone number. And he goes, he probably already has it. And I was like, crap, am I on a watch list? <laughs> he was like, no, I pretended like I had no idea who you were. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I was like, thanks for having my back. <laughs> I I am without a doubt, at least on one or two watch lists, just from like purchases that I've made and stuff like that. You know, I've, I'm, I've, I've been into like weapons and guns since I was a teenager. You know, I've I've bought like swords and throwing knives and switchblades and butterfly knives and a couple of rifles and you know just all sorts of stuff. Um, especially my teenager. Like right now on this live stream recording, yeah. you know, it's out there. Yeah, I mean, I are you going my, boating this weekend by chance? Um, I might be actually. My friend, my friend invited me out on his boat uh, I'll have might have to take all of those things with me just in case <laughs> um, it's, January. it's perfect for sailing right now right exactly we're gonna go um, ice sailing that's a thing <laughs> that, that we invented this year <laughs> uh, but, I mean to be fair my intro to the to the videos is me shooting Reed's um, AR so you know I they, my, my owning and usage of of High-powered rifles is definitely no. It's documented. <laughs> yeah, it's documented. It's out there. Uh, actually, Reed Reed is basically the only reason that I have the following that I have on social media right now is from a couple of videos and things that him and I did together early on. And when he blew up, I got a little bit of uh, kind of ricochet fame. Yeah, your star kind of rose a little bit too. Yeah. I'm mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, thanks to Reed, I'm f now in contact with like you and Dave Smith and even more people that I wouldn't have really have talked to without him. So I owe like all of my following to him, him and Kokesh, like between the two of them have gotten me basically